Senate book. Next on Lectures in History, Vassar College professor Rebecca Edwards teaches a class about the differences between 19th century political parties and their views on gender roles, racial equality, and family dynamics. She describes the transition from a patriarchal family unit before the Civil War to a Reconstruction-era ideal of a nuclear family comprised of a husband as breadwinner and a wife in charge of the domestic sphere. Her class is about an hour and ten minutes. All right, welcome everybody. A little bit of a different class today. All right, so uh, so what we're going to talk about today is the legal and pol political landscape of the family from the Revolution to the Civil War. So we're going to do a little review here at the beginning of a few things that we have worked on, and then we're going to try to pull them all together. Uh, we've essentially talked about um, two family models that were... Uh, that sort of competed with each other in the 19th century. The first being the model of the patriarchal family, which goes way back in law and is based on coverture, right? The idea that once a woman marries, that she's legally covered by her husband, that he is the person for the marriage, and that in some ways, some crimes, a married woman could not actually be prosecuted for because they were really her husband's responsibility if she was engaged in petty theft or something of that sort. The problem of breach of the peace uh, was the husband's problem, the head of the household, because he was supposed to control all his dependents. Needless to say, he had a different relationship with his wife uh, than a relationship of dependency with his children or with his apprentices or with enslaved people in the household, but he was the household authority, and that was the most important uh, uh, aspect of the family. So what we've traced in the first part of this course is the rise of a new, different model of the family. It's not exactly an opposite of the patriarchal family, but it's a modification of the patriarchal family. Uh, it comes from uh, the American Revolution. And we talked about uh, Susan Klepp's work on how there's a political aspect to the rise of domesticity, that the rise of the republic means you need civic virtue, and every citizen needs to be able to be informed and to vote. And so there's a role for women in Republican motherhood in helping to cultivate the right values in young people, uh, particularly young men, uh, so that they boys will grow up to be good citizens. Uh, so you have that political aspect. And you also have an economic aspect as families, particularly in the middle class, begin to invest more in each child. So the model for womanhood, for motherhood, becomes not increased, um, not increased uh, fertility, not fecundity, uh, but when mothers are celebrated for nurturance and for, uh, for their uh, ability to sort of uh, cultivate the conscience in each child. Um, this is particularly prominent in the Northeast. We've talked about how in the South and in the West, domesticity will eventually spread to all parts of the country, and we're going to talk today about how that happens, but how it begins really in the Northeast with the middle class. We've also talked about how historians often tell that as a national story, right? They look at New England and decide that's what's happening everywhere, and we know that's not the case. So, but we see that this is a really important uh, change. Uh, it's 
called by some historians the cult of true womanhood, but we're not going to call it that because we see changed roles for all the members of the family, right? Uh, as opposed to the patriarchal family, the domestic family, or what we might call the capital R romantic family, uh, would include... Um, uh, a kind of golden age of childhood, right? The idea that childhood is a time of innocence and a time of play and a time when the child should be sheltered. Not that children are little adults who begin work and sort of begin acclimating themselves to adult life very early, but that childhood is a kind of special period that's set apart. Uh, we certainly see new ideas of manhood. We've talked about restrained manhood as the central factor in the domestic family, uh, the idea that uh, the ideal husband and father defers to the moral influence of his wife and the mother in the family, that he recognizes the mother as perhaps better Christian, uh, more moral, more sexually pure, uh, and defers to her. And this, we talked about this being an unstable idea because obviously men hold the power uh, legally, patriarchy hasn't quite changed, uh, but on the other hand, women are recognized for their purity and their, their uh, piety. Uh, and also, this goes along with a model of female passionlessness, right? Um, so, we have two models here. We have domesticity or the romantic family, um, with all these new roles for men and women, and we have the patriarchal family, uh, and, and, and we have them somewhat in tension with each other across the course of the 19th century. Before we try to map this onto political parties, which is what we're going to do today, we want to talk about some sort of outliers, right? Um, we've got um, what April Haynes introduced us to as libertine republicanism, or maybe in an older form, uh, rake culture or sporting culture, right? So this is not legally sanctioned. We may see it as, uh, an, as uh, antithetical to women's rights because it involves sexual violence against women. It involves uh, sexual exploitation of women, but outside the legal bounds of the patriarchal family, right? And we see this being particularly visible in urban areas and particularly, um, particularly uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a particular controversy over it in urban areas, but you have, uh, you have it also, if we talk about, say, um, the abolitionist movement, that one of the strongest arguments that the abolitionists make in terms of their success in the North is pointing to slaveholding as a form of rake culture, right? As a form of libertine republicanism, that uh, white slaveholding men in the South were exploiting slaves, uh, enslaved women uh, sexually. And that argument really resonates with these, the, the Northern middle class. Um, on this side, we have some radicals that we just talked about. Uh, the anti-slavery movement arises uh, out of a sense of domesticity and uh, related values. And then you also have women's rights. And before we keep going, um, we want to say again that although women's rights advocates were interested in suffrage, they wanted voting rights, their primary focus in the 19th century was on coverture. Right? was on making sure that married women did not lose all their legal rights. And so 
we have a women's rights movement uh, that's, that's pretty radical over here, right? There's just a few people before the Civil War who were involved in it, but it's working against coverture. And I brought what I think is kind of a fun document that we haven't had a chance to look at yet, which is on the back of your sheet, uh, that is from, um, from Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell, who were leading abolitionists. Uh, who fell in love, even though Lucy Stone swore she was never going to marry, ever, ever, ever. She changed her mind, and she married Henry Blackwell. But under uh, the agreement they reached about getting married, and they had a long and productive marriage and partnership uh, politically and otherwise, when they got married in 1855, they issued a marriage protest. And this became kind of a fashion among people who were very active in the anti-slavery cause. And it was basically saying, we're getting married because we love each other, but we reject coverture, right? Henry Blackwell said that he absolutely refused to recognize any law that gave him custody of his wife's person or exclusive control or guardianship of their children or ownership of her property uh, or of the products of her industry. And so uh, they say they protested against the whole system by which the legal existence of the wife is suspended during marriage, right? In other words, they're just attacking coverture. So they use their wedding as an opportunity to protest coverture. They are sort of pioneers in this, but then some other people do it as well. And I think there's very few things that could show more dramatically how much abolitionists and women's rights advocates who are very closely overlapping groups are focused on coverture, right, as the central thing that they want to overturn. Okay, now we're going to try to map this that we've worked on uh, for this semester uh, onto politics, party politics. I'm going to probably do some simplifying here, just like if you said today more women vote Democratic and people in rural areas tend to be more Republican. You understand those to be shorthands. Uh, they're true to some extent, but that doesn't mean you're going to go find every person in a rural area voting Republican or certainly every woman voting Democratic, right? Um, but I'm going to try to make some kind of broad generalizations about the parties. The reproductive, the, the reproductive regime or the patriarchal family is what I should start with. The patriarchal family is, is uh, really the bulwark of the Jacksonian Democrats. Uh, starting from about 1828, when Andrew Jackson uh, becomes president, the Democratic Party uh, really dominates uh, the national political stage. And we can sum up some of the things that they want to do as they want a small federal government for everything except military purposes, because they want maximum power to go to the ordinary male head of household, the male citizen. And they're suspicious or jealous of any concentration of power. They, for the Jacksonian Democrats, focus on geographic expansion with an emphasis on agriculture, and that's based on rapid population growth, right? So they're big celebrators of population growth. And we've talked about how some Jacksonian Democrats stand up on the floor of Congress and they say, uh, we hail the American multiplication table, right? You go out to a log cabin in Indiana and you'll find a young couple just starting out in life and you come back 30 years from now and they'll have had 20 children. And that's the American multiplication table and that's how we're going to take the continent. So there's an overt attention to population growth. The Jacksonian Democratic Party are fierce defenders of slavery. 
And we're going to talk in just a few minutes about what happens in the 1850s when they begin to get challenged on this. Uh, but certainly everything we've talked about so far in this class about coerced reproduction, of uh, enslaved women's uh, sexual exploitation uh, and the reproductive results of that uh, falls under the heading of, um, of the Jacksonian Democrats. They were big defenders of slavery. They also are advocates of conquest and the removal of indigenous peoples, as we've seen, right? So I think you could probably call all of this put together white nationalism. Uh, there's a question you could ask at the end if you'd like, uh, but it's certainly grounded in population politics uh, and in the patriarchal family and in coverture. And one thing that's consistent about the capital D Democratic Party in the 19th century uh, is they were adamantly opposed to women's rights in an array of different forms, certainly women's suffrage. Uh, the Democrats were very opposed to. And we can talk a little bit uh, afterwards about, um, about why. Okay, so there we've got the patriarchal family and the Jacksonian Democrats who in the political system are big defenders of it. And their policies are really grounded in the need for a patriarchal family. Uh, we could even call it like a, a, a reproductive regime, right? Where all the aspects of uh, Jacksonian democratic policy depend on reproduction. So who's out there opposing them? So starting in the 1830s, uh, the other party up through the 1850s is the Whigs. We're not going to stop to spend a whole lot of time talking about the Whigs today, uh, but we'll just talk about a few of their main ideas. First of all, they believed in growth through economic development rather than so much through geographic expansion. They were advocates of industrialization and of government investment in various internal improvements like canals and later on railroads and the telegraph and things like that that would sort of bind the country together and foster the growth of cities and towns. So they were advocates more, you might, imagine, you might say that the Jacksonian Democrats believed in building out and the Whigs sort of believed in building up in, uh, in a more urban and industrial way. And they were also uh, intended, Whigs tended to be uh, middle class Protestants who were interested in what we called the benevolent empire of reform, right? They had been influenced by the Second Great Awakening they were motivated to go out and perfect the world, right? To bring about reform and to celebrate, among other things, domesticity and female moral influence, right? So if you find a woman in, say, Poughkeepsie here in the 1840s and 50s who's involved in founding an orphan asylum or a home for the friendless, which is what they called homes for women who were pregnant out of wedlock and needed shelter and support, uh, or any other kind of benevolent project like that. Maybe she was out uh, founding a penny society, a cent society, where people could uh, put in a little bit of money to help support missions, Christian missions, things of that sort. Chances are she was a Whig. She was most likely a Whig. Um, now, I want to emphasize that the Whigs did not oppose slavery, except for a small group of Whigs in Massachusetts. Um, and um, they, the, the Whigs were a national party, and they actually agreed with the Democrats on putting in place something called a gag rule, so that for many years in Congress, starting in the 1830s, anybody who petitioned the federal government to abolish slavery 
or to say abolish the slave trade in the District of Columbia or to reopen uh, diplomatic relations with Haiti, which was a country that had been born out of a revolution by enslaved men and women, and therefore the U.S. had no diplomatic relations with it. Any kind of petitions to Congress on any of those issues were automatically tabled. Congress just agreed we're just not going to look at them. This issue is so explosive that we're not even going to touch them. So the Whigs, uh, although they were interested in the in uh, promoting the domestic family in a variety of different ways, were not willing, for the most part, to make an anti-slavery critique. What happens then is that you get uh, uh, protest parties, small parties that we discussed last week, right? The uh, the Liberty Party in 1844 and then the Free Soil Party. And those parties emerged to say, hey, we really need to talk about this issue of slavery, and neither of the major parties is willing to do it. So we're going to uh, emerge and protest this issue of slavery and try to get it on the political table. The political historian Richard Hofstetter famously said that the purpose of third parties in the American political system is to sting and die. They're like bees. They sting and die. Um, and we can see that maybe the, the party, the Liberty Party and the Free Soil Party kind of stung the Whigs. And uh, maybe the sting was fatal since the Whig Party disappeared. But they managed to, one way or another, get the issue on the table of slavery. So by the 1850s, you see the rise of the Republican Party. And so the Whigs disappear. And uh, after about the Republicans run their first national platform in 1856, their first presidential candidate in 1856, so they're emerging through the 1850s. Um, and they take a different tack. Unlike the Whigs, they are a regional party. There's never really much of any Republican party in the South uh, before the Civil War. It's entirely uh, based in the Northeast, New England, the Mid-Atlantic states, the Midwest. Um, and it's not an abolitionist party. I want to be clear that the Republicans were not advocating the abolition of slavery. They said, look, the Constitution doesn't permit that. But they did critique slavery. They were critical of slavery. And many uh, Republican politicians called for the ultimate extinction of slavery. They said we should try to contain it. We should not let it spread into the West, and we should try to uh, see if we can limit it in different ways and ultimately see if we can get rid of slavery. Uh, the most famous Republican politician before Lincoln was actually a New Yorker, William Seward, who became Lincoln's Secretary of State later. And he famously said that uh, there was a higher law than the Constitution, which caused huge protests, right, about, well, your, you know, your job as a politician is to defend the Constitution. And he said, well, when we look at slavery, maybe we should be thinking about a higher law uh, than the Constitution. Well, that may be one of the reasons why Lincoln was nominated in 1860, rather than Seward, who really wanted the nomination, but he had said some things that were somewhat more controversial. So Democrats had long dominated the federal government, right? Um, and, but by the 1850s, they see some of these issues gaining traction, particularly in the North. And they're really worried about becoming a sectional Southern party, and they're really worried about losing power. So a number of things happen in the 1850s that cause increasing polarization between the Democrats and the rising Republicans. And we're not going to talk about this at great length, but I'll give you a sort of a few quick moments here. So in 1850, 
the Democrats passed a new Fugitive Slave Act. People who were slaveholders in the South were very upset by not being able to recover what they called their human property, right? When, it, when people escaped to the North and uh, liberated themselves from slavery. And so the federal government set up basically its own set of courts and said anybody who is accused of being a runaway slave in the North is not going to have habeas corpus under state laws. That's not going to be recognized. They're going to go to a special court, and the judges in those courts will be paid more, actually, if they choose to remand someone to slavery than they do if they free them. And the states have nothing to do with it. And this happens all over the North. There's a case here of John Bolding in Poughkeepsie. There's a famous case in uh, Syracuse, other places where people who have escaped from the South and are living in the North are, uh, are arrested and taken to these special federal courts and sent back to slavery, unless abolitionists manage to liberate them before they're sent back South. Um, and the northern states are outraged over this, partly as a matter of habeas corpus. So a lot of people who don't really care about slavery, a lot of people who do not care about human rights for enslaved people, nonetheless say, wait a minute. The federal government is going to come in here and it's going to tell New York that it, 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 someone living in New York is denied habeas corpus? How is that going to work? How is it that the federal government gets to tell New York this or Pennsylvania or uh, Vermont or any other state? And so they pass what they call personal liberty laws that negate the Fugitive Slave Act. So we talk about states' rights being a southern issue in the Civil War, but it should be clear that the states are just not agreeing with each other, right? Some of the northern states assert their states' rights against what they call the slave power, right? Another issue in the 1850s that increases people's support for the Republican Party in the north is, um, is that uh, southern diplomats in the 1854, uh, they are working for the Franklin Pierce administration. Uh, it is revealed that they are trying to purchase Cuba from Spain. And they're arguing that if Spain won't sell it, that the US should go to war with Spain and seize Cuba, because Cuba would make three really, really good new slave states. And then that would bolster Southern power in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. This creates huge outrage. And Pierce has to back off, and it's never brought to fruition. Uh, but it makes Northerners, again, suspicious that the South is willing to do whatever it want, uh, it, it needs to, that Democrats are willing to do whatever they need to to make this happen. So uh, after that, in the late 1850s, there's a huge struggle in Kansas territory over whether it's going to be free or slave. Some of you may have heard about this or read about this as bleeding Kansas, right? And again, a lot of people are upset, not necessarily because they care whether Kansas is uh, free or or has in, uh, has slavery, but because of how pro-slavery forces operate, a whole bunch of people come pouring over the border from Missouri, which is right next door, which is a slave state, to vote in Kansas elections. And there's uh, the Democratic uh, presidents send a series of governors to Kansas, who are all pro-Southern and pro-slavery, and they look at what's going on in Kansas, and you know. They find that elections have, votes have been cast by uh, a whole bunch of people who were listed from the Chicago City Directory in alphabetical order. And it's really clear that the whole thing is kind of a fraud. 
And so they go to Kansas trying to shore up a pro-slavery majority, and then they just throw up their hands and say, this, is, this isn't working. So again, the issues are about the structure of the political system. Um, and then perhaps most infamously in 1857, uh, in the Dred Scott decision, uh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, tried to solve the political crisis as they saw it that was emerging over slavery. And they were actually secretly pressured by Democratic President James Buchanan to do this. And they said, Congress can't prevent, prohibit slavery in the territories. This can't be done. Um, and again, uh, the fact that this completely undermined past agreements about Congress being able to regulate slavery in the federal territories uh, really, um, really caused a lot of distress and outrage in the North. The, the Supreme Court also went beyond that and said that because African Americans had been brought uh, to the United States for purposes of slavery, they had, quote, no rights that the white man is bound to respect, uh, which is a very infamous quote. So I want to emphasize again that the Republican Party was not made up primarily of abolitionists, but of people who were angry that they saw democracy being subverted. A lot of them so viewed slavery with distaste. Uh, they were not happy about slavery. That was perfectly compatible with, with racism against blacks. Um, so you have a, a kind of volatile mixture inside the Republican Party of people who are anti-slavery and you know, outright abolitionists and others who are upset about what's happening to, to American democracy as they see uh, the Democratic Party overreaching in a desperate attempt to hold on to power. So in the 1850s, the Republicans emerge in a whole bunch of different places. There's actually three different towns that claim to be the birthplace of the Republican Party because it was sort of a grassroots thing. And the Republican Party didn't even have all one name uh, because the Kansas-Nebraska Act was uh, so much of an outrage to many Republicans. There were places where the, the, the emerging coalition was just called the Kansas-Nebraska Party uh, or was called the People's Party or the Union Party. There's a whole bunch of different names. Um, but what happens, and this is kind of extraordinary, is that the Republicans uh, end up holding national power um, from about 1861 to 1874 in a way that pretty much no other political party ever has in American history. It's a unique moment that's worth sort of dwelling on. And I promise you I'm going to get back to domesticity. I've made a little detour, but I will get back to domesticity shortly. But when Lincoln is elected with, with northern votes, right, when the South, on, when the civil, at the, you know, after the 1860 election says, look, Lincoln is a sectional president. They were correct. Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot in most of the former Confederate, and most of the Confederate states, soon to be Confederate states. Um, but the South then secedes, right? Well, if you can imagine, let's imagine then when Barack Obama was elected, eleven Southern states had just left. All their congressmen had just said, "We're leaving." Well, it created, obviously, a, a crisis that turned into the Civil War on one hand, but it also created a Congress and a, um, uh, you know, a political body that was unique, right? Because the South had left. Um, and so the folks who were left in Congress look around at each other and sort of go, 
huh, <laughs> we're a really big majority right now. All our opponents just walked out and decided to create their own country. And so in the meantime, so what I want to focus on today is some of the things that the Republicans did. We're not going to talk about Antietam. We're not going to talk about Gettysburg. You can take my Civil War seminar, and we can talk about those, uh, those uh, battles and about the military side of the Civil War, but about the political side of the Civil War. Because between 1861 and about 1874, when there's a big midterm elections, people never pay enough attention to midterm elections, but the 1874 election is a really, really big deal. Um, and it closes off, I think it's the closing point for Reconstruction, because the Democrats make big gains in 1874 as a result of a big economic uh, crash, uh, panic. And, uh, and so it's really impossible to imagine any further Reconstruction legislation happening after 1874. But during that period, the Republican Party is not only the majority party, they're the majority party with a whole bunch of their opponents gone, right? Uh, so they have a huge, kind of a supermajority. Um, and so here are some of the things that they do. Uh, like one of the things they take from the Whigs is an emphasis on economic development. They want a new, they create a new national banking system. Uh, they pass a Homestead Act. Uh, they pass Moral Land Grant Act. They're particularly focused on uh, getting people educated. Education is a big focus of the Republicans. And the Land Grant Act creates state universities with the idea, it actually sets aside federally owned land that each state can sell in order to, um, in order to fund public education. And they very much want to make education available to working class men and to young women. And they say that in the legislation. You know, Harvard is Harvard, and Harvard will always be there, but we want to make sure there's a much broader access to higher education among other folks who, uh, who can't afford to pay so much. So they have a, a big approach to economic development. And then the main thing, getting back to domesticity, is I want to talk about how the Republicans are really the party of domesticity and how in this period between 1861 and 74 in particular, and then going on a little bit after that, they, uh, they really try to bring domesticity into uh, and the romantic family to make it the, um, the American ideal, to make it the American norm. So I'm going to talk about five different ways in which they did that. The first and perhaps the most obvious was in emancipation. And if you look at how the Republicans talk about emancipation at the time and for decades afterwards, they say... We created homes. We enabled uh, people who were enslaved uh, to become families, to have family rights. Uh, as I think President Benjamin Harrison says in the late 1880s, he stands up and says, the Republican Party turned millions of slave pens into homes, right? And so as they talk about what emancipation means, they talk a lot about family. Which makes a lot of sense since the abolitionist arguments pre-Civil War were focused on how slavery destroyed the family, right? And made it impossible for people to maintain uh, their family bonds and, just, you know, and, and how destructive uh, slavery was to the family. And so when the Republican Party, which of course wasn't really abolitionist before the Civil War, but then during the Civil War kind of discovers abolition as, as the kind of key goal of the war, uh, they really celebrate um, the family. They also do some things that specifically protect um, African-American families, at least during Reconstruction, during this period when they hold the most power. Um, interestingly, the Freedmen's Bureau, which exists from 1865 to 1872, 
So from the end of the Civil War, 1865 up to 1872, uh, sort of a peak period of Reconstruction, the federal government creates something called the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, it's actually, its official name is the Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands, uh, which tells you that it was a little bit of a catch-all, right? Uh, but the Freedmen's Bureau is the first federal agency that ever gives direct welfare aid to families in distress. So they recognize that people who were enslaved, as well as refugees, people who've been displaced by war in the South, need help, and they provide it directly from the federal government. First time it's ever done. It's not done for very long. The Freedmen's Bureau is seen as temporary, and it closes back down. But historians who've looked at this have found that the Freedmen's Bureau was particularly concerned to help uh, formerly enslaved women and their children who might lack a breadwinner and who needed support to try to get themselves on their feet uh, in this new economy where they were trying to exercise their new freedom. So you see a direct federal aid to, um, to families. That might not seem too radical now, but at the time it was a completely new idea, right? So new that they sort of tried it for a little while and then shut it back down again but it was a, a, a recognition of the needs of some of these families. And last, and I gave you a couple of cartoons to go along with this. Um, these are from Thomas Nast in the 1870s. Um, they, um, they, also, uh, they also worked on um, uh, 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 protecting black families from violence. And these cartoons give you a sense of how that was portrayed in the northern press. These are cartoons by Thomas Nast, who was by far the most famous cartoonist of the era. He mostly did his work for Harper's Weekly, which is a very popular, which we have in the library. You can go pull it off the shelves and look at these big, giant uh, Harper's Weeklies. Uh, they're great. Uh, and he was the guy who invented the elephant for the Republicans and the Democrats for the, uh, the, the, the donkey for the Democrats. And he invented the modern Santa Claus and things of that sort. So he was a very important, influential cartoonist. Two examples here of how the struggles of Reconstruction were represented in Harper's Weekly. Uh, the one at the top is called Patience on a Monument, and he's showing an African-American man uh, who has witnessed you know, the, the murder of his wife and child and there's a lot of very, 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 very tiny writing on that. <laughs> if you want to go, I can, if you want to go blow up the original copy to a very large size, you can see what it says on there. But basically it's saying the nation must act because here's someone who is patiently waiting for protection and who's watched the death of his wife and child in quite violence against Friedman, and something must be done. The picture at the bottom shows a family, right? And you have over and over, you see at the top it says emancipation. Over and over you have depictions of emancipation with um, African-American men and women in wedding dress, getting married, sitting in a parlor with their children, surrounded by family, right? This is what emancipation means, and it's what needs to be protected. Uh, it's often forgotten, but in 1870, the federal government actually shut down the Klan. Uh, the first Ku Klux Klan emerged in the late 1860s and began engaging in all kinds of elections violence and terror across the South. And the federal government at that time, still very much dominated by the Republicans, the radical Republicans at that point, said, no, we're not going to allow this. And they went down and they arrested a lot of Klansmen. They did not stop all the violence, but they drove a lot of it underground. 
um, and they did ar- they make a- made arrests, and they very much slowed the pace of violence. So uh, in the, around 1870, 1871, they also ask hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to come to Washington, D.C. and testify. And so there's this very, very powerful set of documents called the Klan hearings that were done in 1870, where the federal government basically says, come to Washington, D.C. and explain. And you have lots and lots of African Americans testifying as to what happened to them. You also have white school teachers who've come south to teach uh, in the south, and others who are victims of Klan violence come in and uh, testify. There's volumes of that testimony. It's really quite, uh, quite powerful. All right, so in that piece, um, the, of, of its first commitment to emancipation and the protection of African Americans in the South, domesticity is really central to what the Republicans think they're doing. That commitment faded, as we know, right? The commitment to Reconstruction fades for a number of different reasons. First of all, because uh, ex-Confederates are adamant and the Republicans in the North can't figure out how to how to meet that intransigence. They really aren't prepared to militarily occupy the South for years and years and years, and it becomes clear to them that that's what they would have to do. Um, The Depression of the 1870s also plays a huge role because Northern voters turn away from the South, and they say, we just don't care. We're tired as taxpayers of trying to help bring, this doesn't seem like it's going to have any end to it. Um, and we, we have problems at home now. We have the railroads are going under, and we have huge amounts of unemployment. And so white voters turn away from their commitment to the South. And then in later, when we talk about Ida B. Wells and lynching and some things later on in the semester, we're going to come back and talk about the legacies of the Union, really, and Republicans withdrawing that commitment. The commitment to domesticity, though, continues, and it takes other forms. So let's explore some of those forms. Um, emancipation being the first of the five areas I want to talk about. The, the second one is economic policy. The, and we might not see an immediate connection between like a, a national banking system and domesticity, right? <laughs> Those things might not fit. But, but I want to make the argument just with one example that the way the Republicans talked about the tariff um, really... Uh, exemplified their commitment to domesticity. This is going to seem weird, right? But let me talk about the tariff for just a second first. So what the Republicans argued uh, they should do and the policies that they enacted are what they called a protective tariff, which is to say that anybody who, say, manufactured particular kinds of textiles or steel or sugar or uh, wool or a bunch of other manufactured products and wanted to ship them into the United States, they had to bring them through a customs house at one of the designated U.S. ports, and they had to pay a tariff. There was no federal income tax in the 19th century. Most of the federal government's income came from tariffs. And the idea was to protect U.S. manufacturers by charging extra. So obviously, if you manufactured something cheap in Britain, and then you brought it into the United States, and when it came into the United States, you had to pay a big tariff, well, you were going to have to charge more to American customers in order to make up the difference, right? And so that would give American people who were manufacturing or producing things inside the United States a competitive advantage. Um, I think 
I'll go out on a limb here and say because this is a hugely com complex issue, but I'll say that I think the tariff worked in building American industries. It was very effective in protecting uh, and nurturing things like the sugar beet industry in the United States and the steel industry, which absolutely you can show that when the tariffs went in place, that really helped build these industries. What the Republicans argued is that, that the benefits of that would trickle down, and that didn't happen so much. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll show you what they meant by trickle down by looking at these other cartoons. Uh, so if you flip onto the very back sheet, uh, there's a cartoon from the 1884 presidential election. Uh, and oh, Actually, all of these are from, from the 1880s. And the argument was this. So because we are protecting American industry, workers in the United States can make a living wage. They didn't use the word living wage yet, but they basically said, look, the male head of household can earn uh, a good salary, and the wife and mother doesn't have to work. There's domesticity, right? Basically, we are creating an American middle class with the tariff. And what we want is women, like the picture up at the top, right, uh, who are home, who are able to take care of the children, who are able to fulfill that role of Republican motherhood, right, and nurturance for their kids. And, um, the, and, and, and then the children will be able to be educated because they aren't having to be in the, uh, uh, you know, they aren't having to work at an early age. They're not, you know, going into the factories and things of that sort. So, um, and, and then this picture at the bottom, which might be a little hard for us to kind of parse nowadays, uh, but basically what they're saying is, look what happens to women in a free trade country. Here are women who, and they sent investigative reporters to England, which they said was a free trade country where women were degraded, working class women were degraded. And so they show, they describe women who are working in mines, coal mines, stripped to the waist, um, who are working in iron foundries with their baby crawling around on the floor beside them. I think some of this maybe was a little bit exaggerated. You have to go talk to Professor Murdoch and take her classes on Britain uh, to think about this. But this is the way they wanted to portray it. And look how masculine these women look, right? They're literally wearing the pants. Um, and one of them's carrying a shovel. So you can read it both ways. You can read it as sort of, you know, <coughs> these are women who are out of their sphere and behaving in ways that they shouldn't. Or really, the main argument for the Republicans was that they're forced to do this because their husbands don't make a, a good wage. It became really clear by the 1890s that the tariffs that the Republicans put in place in the United States did not, in fact, result in a living wage for husbands and fathers and breadwinners, um, and that, uh, that, in fact, industrial poverty was emerging full-blown in the United States, had emerged full-blown in the United States. Uh, but during the peak period of the Republicans' arguments for domesticity in the 1870s and 1880s, this is what they say about the tariff, right? This is their, their economic policy is based on this belief that the goal is to protect and nurture and create domestic families and to enable men and women to fulfill their proper roles. Okay, a little more directly... Um, from our point of view, the Republicans, this is number three, right? So first is emancipation. Second is uh, their economic policies are also in favor of domesticity. And then third, they do. we can see evidence that they weakened coverture, that they listened to the women's rights argument about coverture. We've already seen that in the Morrill Land Grant Act, they were, in, they were interested in women getting higher education, right? They were big advocates of education for women. Uh, as at Vassar College, 
as you're seeing in your research, they weren't always sure what women should do with that education when they, once, they, once they got it. Even Matthew Vassar was a little concerned about that, and a little confused. Uh, but they did think women should get educated, right? They were big advocates of that. Um, here are some other things they did. Um, you begin to see Married Women's Property Act. Uh, New York is the pioneer in this in, in 1848 as a direct result of the agitation by women's rights advocates who are saying, look, married women have to be able to earn their own wages, have their own money, keep their own property. It's just, you know, it's not right for when a woman gets married, she loses all her property. And so uh, those, those spread, particularly during Reconstruction, all during this period, you begin to get Married Women's Property Acts, which the states recognize married women's right to own their own property. You begin uh, to get m many more laws that make divorce easier, particularly for women who are, advocate, who, are, who are alleging physical abuse or sexual abuse. So we said earlier that the whole concept of marital rape doesn't even really come into the law until the 1970s, so a whole century later. But what you do begin to see is that women who come to court and say, my husband makes uh, constant sexual demands on me, my health cannot, you know, my health has suffered, my doctor has said I should not bear more children, um, or my doctor has said that, you know, I've become very frail, but my husband isn't paying any attention, that judges will say, that's cruelty, you can have a divorce, um, as well as with physical abuse. So you begin to see, even though the law hasn't changed, the definition of cruelty expands so that more women can come and, uh, and, and, and make a successful case for divorce on grounds of cruelty. You also begin to see um, an emphasis on child support for mothers. As we might expect from the romantic family, uh, you have a change in assumptions about custody. Uh, you might say that under the patriarchal family, it was always assumed that in any case uh, that, uh, at all, under any circumstances, the father was the primary guardian who made all decisions about the children. Now, under the domestic family, it becomes more important for women to play a role in that, right? And mothers uh, to often get custody in cases of divorce. In fact, it might be assumed that young children should stay with the mother. Um, and you see in the South, and if you're interested in this, Laura Edwards has a wonderful book called Gendered Strife and Confusion about uh, the Reconstruction South. You see African-American women coming forward to courts and saying, um, I'm owed child support. Um, by this white man. Um, you see mothers more generally coming forward asking for child support. And as we talked a little bit before, uh, Republicans tend to be favorable to temperance arguments, and they're particularly concerned about domestic violence. They tend to blame alcohol. Uh, they tend to talk about it as a problem of alcoholism, uh, but they do, uh, they do begin to talk about domestic violence in a broad sense. And to, uh, we talked about like the possibility of raising the age of consent. There's a range of other laws that it tends to be Republicans who focus on. And uh, perhaps most interestingly coming out of the temperance movement is something called the White Cross Movement, which is men uh, who pledge to not to take advantage of the double standard. Um, they don't approach this maybe the way that we would. They say a single standard for all means a single standard of purity for everyone. Um, so rather than seeking a kind of Victoria Woodhull free love approach that we talked about last week, they're going the other direction. 
but they're saying it would be absolutely wrong. If it's wrong for women to have sex before marriage, then it's wrong for men. It would be wrong for a man to ever not tell his marriage partner if he, you know, everything about his sexual history. And so men should be pure. And we are wear a white cross, which will indicate our, the white cross will show our, um, our commitment to sexual purity for both men and women. Um, historians have tend to make a lot of fun of the white cross guys, right? Like these are guys who are sort of um, very prudish and very, you know, sort of like the temperance advocates, kind of people who are going around saying, stop doing that. But if you think about it, it's a pretty rare thing for people to sort of stand up and renounce a privilege of some kind. And it's absolutely in keeping with the idea that partly what the domestic model is in politics is critiquing the patriarchal family, right? And saying that one of the goals of government is to rein in abuses of power by patriarchs who are abusing their power, right? So they aren't completely undermining the patriarchal family. They're still saying men should vote for the most part. They're not big fans of women's suffrage. They're still saying men are the head of household. But they're saying, you know what? There are circumstances in which men are abusing that power, and the, go and the state, government, should prevent that kind of abuse. They should, pre you know, women should not be, you know, because they married the wrong man, shouldn't be forced uh, to endure all kinds of uh, torture and abuse and cruelty. Okay, fourth, um, and this goes in kind of a different direction. Um, so far, maybe, maybe you've been thinking, well, this is pretty good, right? We're moving in the right direction from the patriarchal family to domesticity. The domestic family has some advantages. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, it's uh, more humane. Now we're going to complicate things, right? So um, there are definitely some negatives in the rise of the political domesticity for women's rights and for conversations about birth control. And these fall under the same rubric of protection, tariff protection and other kinds of protection, and, and they go to two bills that are passed for sort of sexual protection of women. And the first is the Comstock Act, which we already talked about a little bit with Victoria Woodhull, but we should go back and do it a little more thoroughly, right? Um, in 1873, uh, the Republicans in Congress, and then it was signed by President Grant into law, banned uh, any obscene information being sent through the U.S. mails. So uh, anything that might touch on, this was interpreted very broadly, anything that might be information about birth control, anything that might be pornography, anything that might be construed as lewd or obscene in any way by 19th century standards uh, could not go through the U.S. mails. And if you tried to send such a thing through the mails, you, would be, you could be arrested. The Comstock Act is a really curious kind of piece of legislation. If you go look in Congress, they didn't say almost anything about it. They just passed it. Um, you don't have a lot of Republicans standing up and saying, this is a great law. Um, and you actually have some uh, Republican and other governors quietly pardoning people who are convicted under the Comstock law. There's a lot of, a lot of mixed feelings about the Comstock law. But we've met Anthony Comstock already, right? He was just one of these people who's a huge crusader and who transforms things by his just raw energy and insistence. Um, and he spoke particularly to middle-class families about... Uh, schools and other places where children might be get, get a hold of information they shouldn't have. Um, he sort of scared the pants off of everybody 
and said, you have really got, well, it's Anthony Constable. We should say that he made sure everybody had their pants on. Um, but he, uh, he said, that, um, he said that, uh, that, you know, any information about birth control was obscene. Um, and in the wake of the Comstock bill, one reason we know this wasn't just a fluke uh, is that most states passed what were called Little Comstock Act. And some of those were even more draconian. Um, and they prevented publishing of, of obscene information as well as transporting it through the mails. And so uh, overall, what you have uh, is, a, is, a, is a tightening, a, se a, a severe tightening of information around any of these subjects. Um, now, I will, uh, and, and uh, uh, Comstock's hounded different free love advocates. Victoria Woodhull was only the first that we talked about last week. Um, much more successfully, he went after some of her successors. Um, there was a guy named Ezra Haywood uh, who ran a radical newspaper and who was one of Comstock's kind of main nemeses. Uh, he and his wife, Angela Haywood, actually ran a newspaper together. And uh, Haywood hated Anthony Comstock so much that he invented a form of birth control, uh, which was a vaginal syringe of the kind we've been talking about before for vaginal douching, which was one of the popular, you know, finding, go down to the drugstore and get something that, you know, they thought would be very acidic or very base and would kill sperm. Anyway, he called it the Comstock syringe um, in honor in honor of Anthony Comstock. And he advertised it in his radical newspaper that you could purchase a Comstock syringe. Um, anyway, uh, Comstock tried several times to get Haywood convicted. And he either couldn't get convicted, this was in Massachusetts, he couldn't get convictions, or he would get convictions and then he would, uh, the, he would get pardoned or um, the sentence would be reduced. reduced. But in, um, uh, in the, by 1890, he actually managed to get a jury to convict Ezra Haywood and, um, and sentenced him to hard labor in prison, and it broke Ezra Haywood's health. He spent several years in prison with his wife, you know, keeping the newspaper going on her own and raising their kids on her own, and when he came out, his health was broken, and he died in 1893. So I don't want to underestimate the Comstock Act and its, 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 its serious ramifications for free speech and for the circulation of information. It's very clear that... Um, that there was a chilling of the atmosphere. And all that stuff we read from Charles Knowlton and all that conversation that we talked about in the antebellum United States where people were publishing books and expand, you know, it just became much harder to do that under the Comstock Act. On the other hand, um, it's pretty clear that Comstock did not actually succeed in getting people to no longer practice birth control. <laughs> uh, birth control, the birth control industry flourished um, it just went underground. And so really when Margaret Sanger comes along at the end of this class and we talk about the emergence of a modern birth control movement, um, they're not confronting a situation where nobody uses birth control. They're, they are responding to a situation in which millions of Americans use birth control but nobody talks about it, right? Because that's the situation that the Comstock Act uh, creates. And I'll do a little detour here. Uh, to explain one of the great ironies, which is that right after the Comstock Act was passed in 1873, a whole bunch of new products come on the market uh, as a result of what historians call the rubber revolution. So, and this goes to Charles Goodyear, who's the Goodyear tire guy. So in, in the 1840s, he was experimenting with rubber, and he accidentally dropped sulfur on it. And, he, just, and he, he, he sort of invented the process that we now call vulcanizing rubber, which means that when you drop sulfur on it, it gets more pliable and soft. 
And so all of a sudden he patented this and he had this vehicle for making modern things, things with modern rubber, right? Well, you can see where this is going, right? <laughs> First he makes all kinds of hot water bottles and everything's like that. But by the 1870s and particularly the 1880s, uh, many of the contraceptives that we recognize now uh, come into existence because of these, uh, because of vulcanized rubber, including uh, what we would call a cervical cap, they call them French caps often. Um, diaphragms, uh, they're you know, modern, more or less modern rubber diaphragms, and condoms, right? We talked about how condoms had been made out of fish skins and things like that, but they were expensive and they didn't necessarily work that well. Um, and so now you have the, you know, the, the foundations for the creation of the Trojan Company, right? Uh, you have condoms, you have diaphragms, you have, uh, you have, um, you have uh, uh, um, cervical caps. And you also, um, they also create IUDs with combinations of rubber and copper. Um, with telegraph wires, copper is a big deal in late 19th century. You get copper more cheaply and accessibly too. So uh, all of these are things you can put in a little box and you can mail to somebody, right? Uh, they're, all, they're, they're relatively cheap all of a sudden. They're accessible and, um, and they're pretty reliable relatively reliable compared to things that were available before. And so what ends up happening is, uh, and Andrea Tone's book, Devices and Desires, has some great stuff on this if you're interested. Um, people particularly in the garment district in New York City, where um, they used rubber uh, for, vulcanized rubber for dress shields, right, that they would put in the front of dresses to give it a smooth line. Um, so there was a lot of vulcanized rubber kind of sitting around that was pretty easy to get, and you could just go down and say, hi, I'm making dresses, and then you could, bring, you could buy and take home a lot of rubber. People had little workshop, craft workshops where they made diaphragms and condoms and things like that, and then they would put them in mail order. And you had to be very careful because you weren't supposed to be advertising them under the Comstock Act, but people clearly found out how to get them because um, people bought, and, and in New York City, People would get prosecuted every now and then, maybe sort of, and maybe fined 20 bucks, which was about what they were making in a couple of days. And then they would go back to making more condoms and diaphragms. So I want to just emphasize the, the tension between the Comstock Act really shutting down national conversation and kind of forcing conversations about sex and birth control to go underground but at the same time, the rubber revolution taking off and birth control itself actually um, flourishing, right? And that's a kind of weird situation where you can, it's clear that people are using birth control more and more and more. Uh, they have more and more fertility control. And at the same time, nobody's talking about it. That's where you get by the 1880s through really up into the 1920s, okay? Uh, the second piece of this um, control that the Republicans put in place, in addition to the Comstock Act and the Little Comstock, is that they sign on with an anti-abortion crusade. This goes directly to birth control and to abortion. And I want to make, make it very clear that the people who drove the anti-abortion crusade in the 19th century were not doing so on religious grounds. They were not clergy. They were not churches. They were doctors. And James Moore's book, which is on your bibliography for today, is the place to go if you're interested in the really detailed history of this. Uh, he does a very, very good legislative history and um, political history. Doctors in the 1840s and 50s um, decide that quickening, that traditional doctrine, right, the, that, of which um, it was not abortion 
until a woman had felt the fetus move in about the fourth or fifth month. And before that, um, what we might understand to be abortion, they did not understand to be abortion. It was, uh, it was um, you know, sort of restoring the menses, right, or restoring the menstrual flow. And, uh, and so that definition of abortion, they come to believe, is wrong, scientifically incorrect. And they also look around, and as, you, as we talked about earlier, they see lots and lots and lots of women having abortions. Not women they expect who are you know, single women or women who might be sex workers, but married women who already have two children who, like today, uh, I think over half of the women seeking abortions in the United States now already have at least one child, right? And it's about, I can't afford another child, or I'm not in a position to raise another child at this time. Um, and they begin to see many, many, many women coming into doctors and asking for abortion. And information in the antebellum period before the Civil War is circulating widely, and so you have um, um, a lot of emphasis on this. Well, it's Republicans, it's the Republican Party who responds to this argument. Um, and really, a lot of the doctors who who make this argument are also themselves Republicans. There's a guy, Horatio Storer, um, S-T-O-R-E-R, Horatio Storer, and he's the really sort of leading, he's kind of the Anthony Comstock of the, of the anti-abortion crusade. He's very, very uh, vocal. He writes a lot of books, and he leads a crusade to persuade Americans that their whole understanding of quickening is wrong. Um, it's not clear that he fully succeeds, and we'll talk more about that later. It's not clear that a majority of Americans ever come to believe that abortion, that, that, um, that, before, that before quickening, um, it's actually abortion. But he certainly persuades a lot of people uh, that to understand abortion differently um, and that the purchase of little pills that will restore the menses you know, through the mail is wrong and should not, that women should not do that. Um, and from the 1850s onward, really all the way up through this whole period, particularly in the Reconstruction period, the states put in place an increasingly draconian set of anti-abortion laws. Almost every state in the United States, as a result of this doctor's crusade, adopts anti-abortion legislation. Most of them target abortion providers. They say it's illegal to provide an abortion. Again, same rhetoric we've seen in a whole different aspect is protecting women. Right? The idea is that this protects women from abortion providers. All right, last but not least, and then I'm going to try to provide a little time here for some questions, um, is that the fifth piece of the Republican uh, sort of uh, effort to promote domesticity uh, is to spread domesticity to everybody. Because once you believe in the romantic family and once you believe that the husband should be the breadwinner and that the wife should be uh, the sort of moral center of the universe and should provide a haven in a heartless world to the husband when he comes home from work, um, once you believe in uh, motherhood and childhood and this w particular way of thinking about the family, which to many of us just might come naturally, but we're, in this class we're trying to historicize it and understand it as a historical um, way, one way of seeing the family among many. Um, once you believe in that, you want everybody to have that kind of family, right? And so the Republicans spend a lot of time trying to uh, promote the romantic family. And I'm going to give you two domestic examples. I could also say that this is the great era of global Christian missions, 
and that those people who wanted to found the benevolent empire of Protestant reform in the United States are quickly sending men missionaries to China and India and other parts of the world in the late 19th century. Um, there's a uh, magazine, a newspaper that we actually have in the library called The Heathen Woman's Friend. Um, and I think that kind of sums it up, right? Uh, that uh, American Protestant women, middle class women, heavily Republican, um, were hoping to go out and spread the, the, the message of domesticity and the blessings of domesticity to heathen women around the world, right? Um, so you have the same thing going on in the United States, and I'm going to talk about two groups, uh, one uh, policy toward indigenous peoples and the other um, Mormon polygamy. So the first, um, the Republicans tried to reform policy toward indigenous peoples, in the late 19th century, they say um, the goal is not uh, to expect native peoples to vanish um, or to exterminate or remove them, but to uplift them and to bring the blessings of domesticity to them, right? Which is a very different approach um, to uh, sort of erasing, erasing culture rather than erasing people, right? Um, they are absolutely obsessed with indigenous men becoming breadwinners and farmers and uh, acquiring a belief in private property. And that, that, and that the goal of that was to, the, the, the key to that was having indigenous women take up the role of domesticity, right? And so they're trying to, uh, as they say, break up the tribal mass and have Native Americans not think of themselves as tribal groups, or as collectives or communities or clans, but to destroy those traditional forms of culture and to emphasize the nuclear family, right? The husband who's the breadwinner, um, often a farmer, is what the white ideal is. And for the Native American women to learn the proper roles of wife and mother. And a lot of indigenous people say, you know what, we have a different way of doing things. Women farm, men hunt. Men have different labor, people have different roles. Not okay, right? From a white perspective, that's not how you want to run the family uh, because civilization depends on doing it differently. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, embodied in the Dawes Act of 1887, um, which tries to basically privatize uh, Native American land holdings so that instead of, you know, the Cherokee Nation holding a, a big piece of land in common. It's trying to create homesteads, individual homesteads for each Indian family. Um, those of you who are interested, the policies on this were largely worked out at a series of conference for the Friends of the Indian, which met over here at Mohonk across the river, uh, and who worked out a lot of these policies. Um, and they were very well-meaning, and they were a complete catastrophe. Uh, the loss of Native American lands under the Dawes Act uh, was enormous. About, a one, about one third of remaining Native American holdings ended up being lost. Um, but I'm not going to go into that in great detail because what we're really focusing on here is the sort of emphasis on domesticity and the family as a property unit and as an as a, a economic and household unit as well as a moral unit. All right, and then last but not least, because this leads us into what we're going to read for Wednesday, right, is that the Republicans went on a huge crusade against Mormon plural marriage, protecting women, right? Again, um, and um, uh, they, uh, they started this in the 1850s, 
It was absolutely essential to Republican identity and political goals all the way through, and I think it's really under-recognized. Um, in the 1856 platform, which was the first time the Republicans had a national platform, they had a plank that condemned those twin relics of barbarism, polygamy and slavery. So in the 1850s, when they talked about wanting to end slavery, they talked about wanting to end Mormon marriage, Mormon polygamy in the same breath. And we're going to talk about this Wednesday, right? There was this portrayal of the Mormon household under plural marriage as being you know, a harem uh, where, where women were, uh, were, were dispossessed and degraded and where, you know, where uh, uh, all kinds of sort of oriental stereotypes are deployed, for those of you who studied uh, orientalism, about you know, the Mormon man as a kind of uh, illegitimate uh, uh, head of household. Um, Mormon women spend a lot of time standing up and saying, it's not really like that. We don't really need to be rescued. Thank you very much. We have our own system. We have our own faith, our own beliefs. And as we'll see Wednesday, a lot of Mormon women say, you know, plural marriage is actually good for women's rights. Uh, and look, we've actually tried to give women voting rights, and you haven't. So why are <laughs> um, And Republicans do not listen. They are not willing to listen uh, to any argument against monogamy uh, to them. Uh, this is a, a horror show, and if you and there's also again uh, a group of middle class Protestant women reformers who also have a kind of grassroots component to this campaign. So you've got Republican politicians in Congress and in the states uh, and in Utah Territory trying to stamp out polygamy, and then you also have a Women's National Anti Polygamy Society which is a, uh, a movement of, uh, of, of, um, of women to try to persuade Mormon women that their whole way of doing things is wrong. So there's a clear imperial version of domesticity, right? Both within the United States as well as abroad. Um, so just to sum up here, um, we're looking at two big eras. Before the Civil War, the Democrats really dominated national politics with, a goal, with a, uh, an emphasis on the patriarchal family and policies of um, continental expansion and displacement of native peoples and slavery, all of which are dependent on um, kind of a reproductive regime under the patriarchal family model. Then I've tried to narrate really quickly today, we sort of zoomed through the Civil War, right, and Reconstruction, thinking about how those look from this particular angle. And the Republican Party really becomes the agent of domesticity in national politics. And I've tried to suggest today that that wasn't just because it was rhetoric, right? They're not just sort of saying that they support the domestic family. It's really embedded in their policies and what they think they're doing is uh, the civilizing mission as, it's go as it uh, unfolds in the United States is very much about the support for the domestic family. The parties, as we leave them in the 1880s, don't look, in some ways they look a little bit like the parties today, but there's been a lot of change. So later in the class, we'll also come back and talk about how the Republicans and Democrats switched roles in the 20th century and which ways they did switch roles and which ways they haven't switched roles. Um, but this really gives you a sense of what the major fights were over what we might call family values politics in the 19th century. Now, did everybody manage to hang on to questions? People have questions? Anything you'd like to go back to and talk about a little bit more? We've disrupted our usual style, which is to like stop and talk about all kinds of Yes, Sabrina. I just have a quick question. Yes, sorry. Yes. Oh, okay. I just have a quick question. So you mentioned um, 
that with the rubber technology. Rubber revolution, yeah. Yeah, the rubber revolution IUDs were created, which was kind of surprising with rubber and copper. Were they safe and or popular back then? I don't know how popular they were. I don't think they were as widely used as the, as the diaphragms and other. Okay. Um, but they did exist, and so far as I know, they were fairly safe. I don't know that much about it. Andrea Tone has maybe more in her book about it, and we could, uh, we could, we could explore further. But it, they, did, they were recognized, and they did begin to be used. So I actually have a book that has some little diagrams of what they look like, so we can we can find out. The IUD you know, has only recently become very popular again as a form of birth control. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of, uh, and, and I don't know that much about its early history, except I can point you to some pictures and we can maybe go explore the sources and figure out what we can find out from there. Anybody else? Yeah. I'm just wondering with um, the, the Republican Party's um, interest in kind of creating this idea of indigenous men as um, farmers, was that, did that have anything to do with like an agricultural aim for the country or was it like they just wanted to put them in a separate category? It's a really good question. So I think in the Homestead Act, they were also wanting to encourage white farming families to go out. So there's not, I don't want to say that uh, the Democrats were the only ones who were pro-farmer, right, because the Republicans are. Is there anybody in American politics who's ever been against the family farm, right? Um, I think in particular in looking at indigenous peoples, and there's some very interesting stuff on pol economic policies toward African Americans in the South, too. There's a kind of nostalgia, uh, and I think it goes along with a kind of um, racism in which there was a belief in sort of stages of race racial development. There's a wonderful chapter I can point you to in Philip Deloria's book, um, uh, Indians in Unexpected Places, where he has a great chapter called I Want to Ride in Geronimo's Cadillac. Uh, and he talks about how difficult it was for white Americans in the 1910s and 20s to, to get used to the idea that Native Americans could drive cars and wanted cars. And there was just this sense that, like, no, they aren't really at that racial stage of development yet, right? They should, and I think the same thing goes with, like, you should become a farmer, and then you should become a blacksmith, and then maybe... There's a kind of racism there that's sort of assumed, and, and you see the same thing in the South. It's like, well, we should have um, African American men become blacksmiths. Well, blacksmiths were out, I and mean, it's like that's that's like I don't know, that's like somebody teach, teaching someone, you know, uh, how to fix a typewriter today. It's like <laughs> that's not that I mean, that's based on nostalgia, right? Or on a on a, a, a racialized way of thinking that like we want them to do less. We're not they're not ready for the sort of cutting edge of the economy or whatever. Um, and um, of course, native peoples made, for example, a lot of native peoples went into skyscraper building. Um, it's kind of uh, and a lot of people moved to the city and did completely different things. Uh, but uh, then then they were expected to do. But there was a kind of script there, uh, and I think it went along with nostalgia and that sort of love for the family farm, and also a sort of racism that said, well, these are the appropriate things. As, as well as the fact that Native peoples had been shipped off to reservations in places where, I mean, they're not near still mills, right? They're not, <laughs> they've been shipped off to really remote places. 
uh, which of course ironically makes it very difficult to farm. You've got native people saying, would you like to come try to farm this spot that you stuck us in? Because it's part of the desert and we're not having much success. So we don't really think you would either. So there's that, there's that issue as well. One more? Um, I was wondering, you were talking about how the Whigs were interesting in like building up, right? And yeah. kind of like fueling the economy locally and what they already had. Yeah. But then from like everything we've said, I kind of like, there's a lot of like white saviorism in Republicans and like, yes. like spreading the word and spreading the good ways. And so, and that included like spreading it to Indian territories. And so I'm, I'm wondering, did that continue on to republicanism, this idea of like just bettering what we have? Because they seem to really want to save the world. So like, right. I'm just like confused into like, did they want to just make themselves better? Or was that like with Christian missions, et cetera, like a worldwide like I think trying to expand? I think it's both. It's a good question. I think it's both, right? And it's, it's both about we need to perfect our own families and our own society and our own communities, and then we also need to spread the blessings of civilization to everybody else. It's also both economic and moral, right? It's about economic growth and, um, and industrialization, and it's particularly about using how government is used. Should, is it okay for government to help build canals and railroads and things like that? Um, or should government stay out of the economy? And the Whigs and the Republicans are big advocates of government having an active role. You can see similarities today in arguments over, like, should government help foster green energy invest infrastructure or things of that sort, right? It's that kind of a debate. What role should government play in bringing about new technologies? So, and that goes hands in hands with this, yes, absolutely. What did you call it? It's got, it's a good name. Um, uh, white saviorism. White saviorism, exactly, right. That's, you know, the heart of a lot of this kind of uh, uh, argument about the family. Okay, thank you everybody, and I will see you Wednesday, and we will talk about um, Mormon plural marriage from a bunch of different perspectives, okay?